Welcome back to the Wedding Wisdom Podcast with Doug Winters. I am your host, Doug Winters. I am totally delighted to bring you my Long Island homie, (laughs) Leslie Price. Turns out that we were both raised and she now lives in surrounding towns from where I grew up in Valley Stream. We discuss everything from planning spectacular weddings and events at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the New York Public Library, and as far away as Santa Fe, New Mexico. And I truly found our conversation to be joyful, educational, and for sure, inspirational. There are 39 days left until the election, six days till the first presidential debate. So please register to vote, then vote. As usual, I'll see you on the other side. Enjoy my delightful conversation with my guest for episode 75, the extraordinary Leslie Price. It's so much more than one day, cherish the journey. That's my company tagline and my mantra in life. And it's your wedding, it should feel like you. If somebody calls me and they point to something on my website and they say, I want to do that. I say, let's take what you like from that and make it. I don't ever want to do the same party twice. I work a lot in some iconic landmark spaces, and I feel that each time I work there, I reinvent the wheel so that it feels unique to that particular client and what their aesthetic is and try to really infuse their energy and their personality. And that comes from getting to know my clients. So I am really particular about how many clients I take on so that I can devote a lot of time to them and getting to know them. We're definitely not a factory. So you run every party that you do or do you have associates? I I have a team of people that work for me, but I am intimately involved in every detail. I don't pass it off to somebody who works under me. Oh, that's great. Hey, can I ask you a question? Sure. Is Wall's Bakery in Woodmere still there? Yes, it is. It's in Hewlett. Oh, it's in Hewlett. It's still in Hewlett. I'm at in Hewlett. It's owned by the same family. Um, and it's just as fantastic as it ever was. That is maybe the word. I mean, you could talk about Greenberg's in Manhattan. You, that was and probably still is the greatest bakery I've ever been to. <laughs> I swear to God. Please, that I is mean, their un- fluff is legendary. There's nothing fancy about it. It's just fantastic. I often wonder if, it, if it's fantastic for us because we grew up with it and it, there's something about it that just reminds you of childhood and home or if it really is that fantastic. Yeah, I wonder. <laughs> yeah, I know. I wonder too because I moved up to Westchester. Anytime I had a job at like Temple Israel or the Sephardic Temple in Cedarhurst, you know, all, you know, all, the, all the synagogues in right, right. Long Island, I would always make a detour to Walls, always. Yeah. And God, I love that place. <laughs> I just had to ask you. Yeah, my mom had dementia. Oh, I'm sorry. And we just lost her actually during COVID, but I would go get balls for her because it was one of the things that she always remembered. She remembered the box with the string, the old school. The box with the string. She had her favorite cookies there. Anytime I take it to her, it always made her smile. <laughs> for those of you that don't know what we're talking about, Walls is a, a bakery. Yeah. Particularly a Jewish bakery on Long Island. It is. They don't really exist in Westchester. They really. don't exist anywhere. It's a one-shop deal. It's family-owned. It's really- no, I mean Jew- Jewish bakeries specifically. Oh, 
oh, oh, oh, Jewish bakeries in general. Yeah, in general. You know, it's interesting. My takeaway on my experience with Walsh yeah. is back to making it making somebody's wedding their own is that there are things that you can infuse in the wedding that will take people, people back. Like food is definitely something that invokes memory. Yeah. In the same way that scent invokes memory, certain colors invoke memory. So when we go back to making something your own, something from your childhood, something, you know, your grandmother's recipe, something that we to help make it meaningful and personal. Oh, so, oh, I see. So if, if at the end of the party, you gave away black and white cookies from Walls. <laughs> right. Or you serve Walls cookies on the table. You have a big three-tiered thing and you've got Walls cookies and maybe only a quarter of the people at your party know Walls. Yeah, yeah of course. You know? But you even put something in the program or something on the menu or something as it's served. Tell people that it's from your childhood and what it means to you. Oh. And then everybody connected to that it. Makes, so there's lots of... That makes total sense. Yeah. yeah. Listen, we could so easily talk about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. You know what? Let's just... Just to keep it timely. Today's September 21st. Yes, it is. And we had a... A tragic loss for American jurisprudence and great minds in, a, in the world, in Ruth Bader Ginsburg. In fact, she died on Rosh Hashanah, no less. I know, which, you know, those in the Jewish religion say if you die on Rosh Hashanah, you are a special person, a blessed human being. But you're always doing your best and being your best to find balance and to create balance. Right? Do you know what I'm talking about? I do. And she has a great quote. The symbol of America is the bald eagle. But I really think the symbol of America are the scales of justice. I, I think if we were Catholic, we would be talking about sainthood. Yeah. I, I think she has always been an inspiration. Mm-hmm. I, don't think, I don't think I realized how much I lean on her for comfort. Something about knowing that she was there, I felt somehow safe in the knowledge that she was going to do the right thing. And so when she died, though, I think for a lot of us, there was this sense of despair. Right. Um, that suddenly we lost that. But I think if 2020 has done anything for us, there's been a real awakening for people. Yeah. You know, obviously we're very polarized. And I think she's an inspiration. She was an inspiration before. And I think her death is going to reinvigorate and renew people's dedication to doing the right thing, dissenting respectfully, as she always did. We're so polarized. There's so much anger. I think what one of the many remarkable things about her legacy is that she was able to respectfully dissent. I talk to my husband about this all the time. Is there any one person in the world that you agree with 100% 100% on everything? No. Right. No. So how could you possibly think that you'd find a politician that you agree with on everything? I don't even agree with my husband on everything. <laughs> 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 or my clients on everything. Yeah. You can't agree with somebody all the time. So the goal is to listen and to communicate with that anger and to respectfully sometimes agree to disagree. And certainly with politicians, I feel like we're always in a position of the lesser of two people. You know, I think it's always been that way. It, ha- it 
has always been that way. Yeah, it really yeah. has. So let's talk yeah. about good things. All right, let's talk about weddings. Yeah. I do definitely get very involved with my clients. And so creating the right team is part of my job. And I don't use the same people all the time in each category. I have different vendors and they each are a little bit different and unique in their own way. You know, whether it's stylistically or from a price point perspective, probably both. Mm -hmm. So when I recommend vendors to my clients, I start by getting to know them, their likes, their dislikes, their favorite places, their favorite things. I send out a pretty detailed questionnaire before I even take a job to get a sense of what their expectation is and what they're trying to achieve. Even they may not know when they come to me exactly what they're looking for. And some of them are pretty sure of what they think they want. But maybe as we start going down the road and they see options that they hadn't considered before, then they'll make a right turn or a left turn or a U-turn. You know, it's it's a journey. And I always, I've been saying for years that it's a journey, not just for them, but for me too. It's true. But I mean, it, it really is a journey in the best sense. And this is what I also say to my clients when they're going through the process, whatever your personality is, mm-hmm. it's multiplied by 10. If you are somebody who has trouble making decisions, become paralyzed with indecision. Oh, wow. If you are somebody who is a control freak, you must have everything a certain way. Sometimes control manifests itself through money and finance. Right. And so you then become very, very focused on the budget, which is frankly not a great way to cherish the journey. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So what I usually do before someone even hires me is spend a week or two talking to them, sending out my questionnaire and putting together a preliminary budget for them based on what I think they want. Reiterating back to them what I've heard from them in my proposal. And then getting on the phone with them or on Zoom and saying, here's what I think it's going to cost for you to get everything you want. Here's how I see it breaking out. Here's the way that we're going to allocate it. And here's why I think we should allocate it that way. Here's the wiggle room, you know, so that they, before they even hire me, they know where we're at and we're on the same page. And then my job is to recommend people who are within that framework. You know, if somebody then says to me after I show them options, what else you got? I can say, well, we can do this, this, and this, but that's going to change your bottom line. So by having the budget at the very beginning, having the conversation at the beginning, you shift the focus to creativity rather than how much is it going to cost. We already know how much it's going to cost. This is great, and I love the way this is going. Do you mind if I ask you a bunch of questions specifically about this? Okay. When I first started doing the podcast, I always thought of myself as an island you know, I'm up there on the bandstand. All I care about is whether people are dancing and whether they got their hot food, hot food, and cold food, cold. People are seated when they're supposed to be seated and not a second longer because timing is everything. But we'll talk about that in a minute. But it never occurred to me how many pieces create this team like you're talking about. Lighting, but flowers. Hearing the word tablescape. David Bean was talking to me about ironing linens. Sure. Sylvia Weinstock talking to you about, you know, cake is food, which is my favorite quote. The one element that seems the most elusive to me and the hardest to describe and probably very expensive is lighting. But I can't tell you how many people in your position have said to me, lighting is everything. 
The reason I'm bringing it up now is because when people talk about budgets, they all right, they know the band's going to cost, they know the photographers are going to cost, they know flowers are going to cost, they know they know the built-in things, but people don't really think about lighting yeah. per se. I don't think. And, and and often when we talk about it in the budget, they're surprised by how much I allocate to it. Every right. florist is going to be really angry with me when I say this right now, but lighting is even more important than flowers. Yeah. yeah. Well, could you explain why? Forgive me, every florist that I love. Don't think I don't love florists. I do. But if you if you walk into a room and there's no pin spots on the table filled with flowers, that whole room is going to feel flat. You won't even. Now, how do you, Bart, So, how do you explain that? I can show somebody pictures of a room with pin spots, right? Um, and explain what that looks like. But it's not just pin spots. When you're designing a room, it's not just about what's on the table. Mm-hmm. Because it's not just a picture for Instagram, it's an experience. And so when you're walking through a space, you're not just thinking about what the table looks like, you're thinking about the experience, it's theater in the round. So thinking about the transitions, not just what the ceremony looks like and making sure the hoopah is lit, mm-hmm. but the experience of what does it feel like when I first walk into the room? What am I looking at? What's my, what happens during my transition areas from the entry to the ceremony, from the ceremony to the cocktails, from the cocktails to the reception. What hallways am I walking down and what do they look like? That's an experience and an opportunity. But there should be something happening at all times. Right, transitioning and building, right. So at the New York Public Library, the challenge, if you're doing a ceremony in that space, it must be a civic ceremony, no religious, no mention of God. Um, Oh, okay. That's so interesting. Civic, yeah. civic only. Yeah. They start you at seven o'clock in the morning for load in. I usually buy the extra hour, start at six. My setup can be a little more elaborate. Get in, we set up the lighting and we set up the wiring for the sound. Everything is preset behind curtains. And, and at six o'clock, when the library closes, we have one hour to flip Astor Hall whether it's for the ceremony or the cocktail hour. All right. For, for people that aren't in New York, describe Astor Hall. Astor Hall is the largest marble room in the country. It's entirely made of marble. It has a huge dome ceiling. It's two stories. It's got a gorgeous double staircase on either side, also completely of marble. Wow. Uh, four built-in candelabras, three iconic arches, uh, usually where we place the ceremony, that transition between Astor Hall and Astor Hallway, which is directly behind it. So if you do your ceremony there, you can do your ceremony in Astor Hall, and then your cocktail hour in Astor Hallway. So there's nothing oh. like it. There's just nothing. It's stunning. stunning but you know what I'm going to say as a musician, never having played there. Oh, terrible acoustic. <laughs> <laughs> you know, years of doing it there, I, I've, got, I've got it down. One of the things that I was going to bring up, when you're switching the, the space from 6 o'clock to 7 o'clock, can't open the doors to the guests until 7 p.m., period, end of story. The library will not let you open the doors earlier, even if, let's say, for the sake of argument, you're ready at 6.45. 7 o'clock is when the doors open to the guests. So what I have been doing is putting a violinist or a violinist in a cello or a trio mm-hmm. um, outside for guests as they gather. 
so that so they're not just standing around. Not just standing there. We can't serve food and drink out there, but we can have music that's not amplified. Right. And classical music is a great way to get the party started. The best, especially in an iconic classical place. And, and, you know, anywhere, I always have the musicians start anywhere from 15 to 30 minutes prior to invite time. Because you've always got your early birds. And you don't want them to feel like early birds. You want them to feel welcome. Yeah. I, I usually say to people, we're set up a half hour early and we start when they see the whites of people's eyes. <laughs> the, first, <laughs> you know, the first person that walks in, we start. You know, just so That's that it. they feel comfortable. Yeah. That's the tone. You know what, it sets the tone for the vendors, too. When you hear the music start, you stand up a little bit straighter, straighten your tie, dust yourself off, get yourself ready. It literally sets the tone for the night, for everybody. So, yeah, music's powerful. It's yeah. Powerful. Oh, so go back to lighting, how you, how you explain. Oh, it's set design. Lighting is set design, and lighting is experiential. I remember we did a wedding when loft spaces were all the rage. Uh, at a loft called Peter White Studios. Do you remember Peter White Studios? Oh, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Fantastic yeah. space. Not around anymore. We're going back to, I'm embarrassed to say, I think it was 2005. Designed uh, lucite tables with uh, LEDs when they were brand new. So we put the LEDs in the lucite pedestals under the table, frosted, and then we surrounded the room with uplight LEDs, and they were all connected to each other. So when guests walked into the room, the room was a blue, like a cool blue. And throughout the course of the dinner, it very slowly transitioned, a light transition from color to color, gradually, slowly. It was an experience. And people had never seen anything like that before. So suddenly they looked around and the room that started out blue was pink. It was a big deal at the time. Now I think it's like so passe. But when we came up with the idea, you know, it was mind-blowing. You know, now I think there's so much more opportunity with lighting. Not just the simplicity of a pin spotter and uplight or moving lights for dancing. That I think everybody has seen. But what's happening now is, again, experiential light so that um, you can light map a space. I'm assuming that most of the people listening to this are brides or parents of brides or people who are about to spend money on this kind of stuff. Okay. So uplighting is kind of obvious, right? It's on the ground right. and it's shooting up. It creates drama. Usually I use uplighting on architectural details like columns mm. or arches. So uplighting is almost like in a pot on the ground and then it shoots up. It's a, a wireless device where you can strategically place it to create dramatic effect. You can use it to cue guests to transition from one space to another. Sometimes I have the lights off in one area and when I want to transition them, I dim them in one area and raise them in another and we're moving guests through light and sound rather than telling people where we go or showing people where we go. Oh, wow. Experiential. You're explaining it beautifully. I mean, so I'm getting a very clear picture. So that, so that, you know, uplight is, is a simple and effective way to light a space. Pin spots are small beams of light that I usually use from, from the top down rather than the uplight, which comes down up, right? Pin spots, I usually focus on a detail, whether it's flowers on a table 
or decorative elements on a bar or a cake. A pin spot can be made wider or narrower. It can be on dimmers, so we can control the level of intensity. Physically, where is a pin spot? Does it have to be a kind of girder? It depends on your lighting company and what their capabilities are. Many of the companies that I'm working with now have wireless magnetic pin spots. So depending on the room, you can actually put a pin spot on the ceiling or on a beam or somewhere where you won't even notice it and it'll blend and be able to angle it perfectly on what we need it to angle. If we don't have that ability, lots of my vendors use a pipe and drape or a pipe with a base and then they pin or they hang bars from the ceiling. That's, that's what I'm talking about. So something has to be constructed, even if it's not monstrous, it's something. Something has to be constructed. So pin spots, my ideal way of doing it is where you don't see the mechanics. You know, if I could have an invisibility cloak, I'd be really happy. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's the way pin spots work. Right. And then intelligent lights are moving lights that are used for transport. I've heard that term for years. Okay. <laughs> what does that mean? If anybody has ever been to a dance club or they've watched a music video, Mm -hmm. there are moving lights that move along the dance floor or move along the stage and can create patterns and colors. And that's intelligent lights. And we use them on the dance floor to create interest. Sometimes we start them projecting something on the ceiling and then when it's time for dancing, they're usually mounted high Mm -hmm around the corners of the dance floor in strategic locations. All right, so it's intelligent lighting, pin spotting, up lighting. Right, and then there's newer elements. I mean, everybody loves hanging light. Everybody loves hanging decor. So lighting often plays into hanging decor. Edison bulbs were all the rage for a long time. I don't think they've ever quite gone away. But What are they called, Edison bulbs? Edison bulbs are string lights. Oh, okay. You know what I mean? And chandelier situation, it doesn't have to be a crystal chandelier, it could be a wrought iron chandelier, it could be a wooden chandelier, it could be a chandelier made with candles, like the stars in the sky, the possibilities are endless. I was going to ask you about the candles. Sure. Do you sometimes get people that say, you know, we want a warmer look? Of course. Can we have like a million candles? You can have all candlelight, but... Mm -hmm. You can't direct it, like... Like you were talking about. You know, it's beautiful at the right moment. I think that doing just candlelight still leaves you a little flat. Maybe it starts off just candlelight and then we bring up the intensity. I think every event should have highs and lows. So when we schedule an event, you're scheduling when there are speeches and when they're sitting and when they're dancing and when the cake is cutting. And so we create highs and lows in a schedule. We can use light as part of that moment and changing the moment. So okay. maybe the intelligent lights don't, are not happening in the beginning of the evening, but the movement begins when we're ready to have them dance. So lighting not only can cue people where to go and transition from one room to another, but also change the mood of a space from something low key that's all about the food and the service to something more elevated that's all about the music and the dancing in the same space. Lighting. So intelligent lighting is really connected with the dance floor. Yes. Okay. 
Is there a percentage that you say, okay, let's put X percent on flowers, X percent on lighting, X percent on music, X percent on design? I don't really look at the budget in terms of percentages. Okay. I know what things cost. And so for each client, I try to ascertain what their expectation is. And then I allocate based on what I know it will cost and then come back to them and say, this is what it is and this is how I allocated it. So we can always pull back. You know, I was going to say the basics of lighting that I just mentioned, the uplight, the pin spotting, the intelligent lights. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, the hanging lights. That's the beginning. Then there's light mapping. There's light projecting. There's light mapping, right. I've heard, yes. Right. So you can actually change the look and feel of a room. You can make a space that has no architectural interest look like the Palace of Versailles with light mapping. You can have a video projection I did in the in Astor Hall, back to the library. I had lighting company project floating clouds. So it looked like oh. the ceiling was open to the sky and the, clo- the clouds were rolling. Oh my gosh, yeah. that's great. It's fantastic. But you know, that's that's next level lighting. I've yeah. seen Levy lighting actually. Do you know Levy lighting? Levy, yeah, I relieve you. I relieve you. Has been on the podcast. Yeah. He's the one that started me on this journey of writing about but, right. lighting. Very innovative company, very yeah. innovative guy. He's doing projections of butterflies and birds. I was there standing next to it, seeing it happen. It looked like the butterflies were right there flying next to me in their light projections. It is incredible. Yeah. Yeah. We should definitely give a shout out to Ira Levy and I'll, I'll put a link to him on the, on the uh, uh, it, what was funny is that we were talking in the lighthouse, his place in, in Brooklyn. And one of his assistants took a picture and showed it to me as we were talking and I was, we were set up and pre COVID, like I would have driven out to Rockville center and we'd be sitting in your office facing each other. But I was in his office, you know, we were just sitting in the middle of a white room that they use for model shoots and TV shoots. And he shows me a picture and it's me. And behind me is like the Arc de Triomphe. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like as if I'm sitting in the middle of the Arc. And it's amazing it's, picture. It's incredible. Um, yeah. There's a space, uh, Cipriani Broadway downtown, that has tremendous architectural interest. And yeah. they've light mapped the entire space. So it could, on one hand, look like surrounded by the New York City skyline that literally grows around you. On the other hand, it could look like a palace with snow falling through the windows. It's remarkable. (laughs) So there is no limit. There is no limit to what you can do with light, which is why when you ask me, how do you allocate money for it? Is there a percentage? There isn't because, you know, depending on what someone's expectation is and depending, you know, frankly, upon how far they want to take it, will determine what I allocate each area. So it's up to you to tell them, here are your options. You know, you can go from here to making butterflies in the, right. <laughs> up here in the middle of the room. Right. You know, it's, it's for me to ask them the right questions, mm-hmm. to try to understand them and present them with options. And at the end of the day, they're the ones making the decisions. Well, oh, by the way, what term do you like? Party planners, event party coordinator, doesn't really matter, right? I don't care. <laughs> yeah. Okay, good. I don't care what you call me. <laughs> yeah. 
As I, I said to somebody, they, they said the same thing. They say, I, listen, it's my job to make sure that the entire team plays nice in the sandbox. I don't care. Call me a kindergarten teacher. Call me anything you want. Exactly. All right. So is it up to you to say, okay, the lighting can be $5,000, the lighting could be $500,000? Or is it up to you to say, I'm going to bring in, let's just use the name Ira Levy, and he explains the pricing? At this point in my career, I know what things cost. Okay. And I know how to allocate budget. If I okay. don't know what something costs, then I call up my people and I speak with them before I make a recommendation. Once in a while, every once in a while, I get surprised. I'll give you a perfect example. I did a destination wedding and it was very, very last minute. There it was in Santa Fe. So you can't you can't fly to Santa Fe directly from New York. Got to fly to Albuquerque and then from Albuquerque drive like an hour and 15 minutes or fly into Dallas and then transfer Dallas to Tennessee. It's a, it's a, a little bit of a hike. It's so worth it. It's so worth it. I love <laughs> really? it there. I love really? it there. It's spectacular. In fact, it was a year ago today. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Happy anniversary. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, they got engaged in. March, we found the venue in April. We booked the venue, I think in May. So we didn't have that much time, you know, May to September. And I had allocated a certain amount of money for all the different elements. But when mm -hmm. it came to the tent, I had assumed that we were going to be able to find and work with a fairly local tent company. Mm -hmm. And when I started exploring the options, what I realized was that the tent companies out there didn't have what we needed. And so that element ended up being a much more expensive piece of the puzzle than we had originally anticipated. Where'd you bring it in from? Like a larger city in Texas, from LA, from New York? The, I looked at LA, I looked at right. Dallas, I looked at Colorado, but because it was this particular weekend last year, and it mm -hmm. was such a busy weekend, 20, you know, you remember the 21st night of September? On a Saturday oh, night. My favorite song. Right, absolutely. But everybody loved it and everybody picked the weekend. It was a very everybody hard wants to get married on the 21st night of September. It was a very hard weekend to find a tent, a, a, the specific tent that we were looking for. Um, so I shifted in from the East Coast. I had, oh, wow. I had it driven in. The, the additional prices were built in. I mean, the, you, they knew that it was going to transportation to the... Sure. I mean, obviously... You know, it's easy to explain. Obviously, there were, there were additional conversations. So if I, if I make a mistake, I'm going to be the first one to say mea culpa. But I don't just go to one place and say, you know, this is your only option. We're not working with anyone else. You have to work with this. That's not the way I roll. And in that situation, I was really exploring every alternative before trekking it in because obviously we want to be as cost effective while still having the best right. quality and staying safe. So how does somebody decide if they need a planner or if they can just do it themselves? It's not something where you, you must have a planner, although there are some venues that insist that you have a planner. For instance, New York Public Library requires that you have a planner because it is a logistically complicated venue. I am, and I'm actually, a I'm, a I'm a required planner at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And that you're actually on their website. Yeah, that was a surprise. <laughs> I was hired to do first wedding at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in 30 years. And from 
that event, I received two additional recommendations from the Met. And so I planned three weddings there. And it was an amazing experience for me. First of all, I'm an art history major at NYU. So I spent my college education going to the Met and going to the Cloisters, among other museums. It was my stomping ground. And uh, it was such an amazing privilege to be able to plan that. I think the reason why I was invited back is um, I'm a logistics girl to my game. (laughs) And I created a new protocol and a new system for communicating deliveries and managing the ins and outs of the load-in, load-out process and also the actual flow to a level of detail that I had never done before. And it worked for the museum and what they needed. They have a very big security team. Okay, could you expl- just go a little deeper into that? I developed a, I developed a very detailed timeline. Okay. Basically, for load-ins, I don't, I don't think I, I don't think people have any idea of how much is involved. For instance, you're not allowed to walk backward in the museum when you're loading in. So you know how sometimes when you're loading into a space and you put something on a dolly yeah. and you load up your equipment, mm-hmm. there's one person on the front and one person on the back, and someone's walking backward. Yeah, that's not allowed in the Metropolitan Museum. You're also not allowed to load anything above your shoulder level. You need to be able to see. So there's a lot of details that we put into place to make sure that we wouldn't have problems. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, we need to know every piece of equipment that's coming in prior to it coming in. Wow. Yeah. They come in, they set up. Let's say your musicians come in and they have a sound check. From the sound check, they have to go down to the green room, which is in a separate area. They can't just walk through the museum and walk to the green room. They need to be escorted there by security. Oh, is the security detail on your side or from the museum side? It's from the museum side, but my job is that I have to communicate in my production schedule what's happening and when. So if my client wants an outfit change or wants a hair and makeup touch-up, I have to schedule that and make sure that we are able to have the security detail to make it happen. It's not just the vendors, it's the, nobody can really walk around on a school. Nobody can walk around unless it's scheduled and presented in advance, which means it takes an extra level of thought and detail. All right, so once you did this once and were successful doing it, they said, oh my God, we found the gem. (laughs) (laughs) I've never been so detailed in my production schedule. I mean, color coding is uh, to the next level. I would love, to, <laughs> I would love to see your work on that. <laughs> I mean, the amount of hours it must have taken you. It, and, but it's more than just that. It's, it's not my dictator. Yeah. What it is is working with everybody involved mm-hmm. to create something that's collaborative, so that everybody has buy-in and ownership. I'm not telling you what you have to do. I'm thinking through the process with each vendor who's involved. Sometimes there's 30 vendors that are involved in one project. Right. So that everybody knows what everybody else is doing and their role in it. So the understanding is, oh gosh, if I show up an hour late, I'm throwing off that entire timeline. 
if I don't do what I'm supposed to do when I'm supposed to do it, I'm messing up all these other people and I'm messing up this process. So you're not an island right. on there just getting people to dance. You're seeing a bigger picture. Yeah. And that that's part of my job is that people understand that they're a part of a team and I'm communicating not just my expectation for them, but for everybody. And then, you know, part of it also, I mean, when you're working in a place like the Met, I think we talked about this when we were on the phone. Yeah. I tell everybody, leave your attitude at home. I don't, I don't want to hear it. No, I don't no. have an attitude. I don't have an ego. When you show up at the security desk, bring your ID and leave your ego. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> because the security guards are doing, doing their job. Yeah. And it's an important job. Be respectful, be kind. You know, realize they're a part of the team. I think respectful is the key word. We're all just trying to create magic for a night. And when you, when you do it, when you get it right, mm-hmm. how good does it feel? Oh. When you know you're a part of a special event yeah. and you see the magic come together and, it's, and you can't even describe it, right? You know what I'm talking oh, about. Oh, of course, yeah. There's no greater satisfaction than watching that come together. Yeah, absolutely. It's fantastic. The full mantra is it's so much more than just one day. Cherish the journey. Right. And I use that a lot when I'm speaking to my clients, sometimes I'm speaking to my vendors, but when I'm speaking to my clients, not just when things are good, but when things get hard and when things are stressful. Yeah. You know, sometimes maybe you're not agreeing with your fiance. Sometimes what you want and what your parents want are two different things. We haven't even touched on family dynamics. Right. Well, the family dynamics are always fun. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> At the end of the day, everybody wants the same thing. They want a fantastic event and they don't want to get ripped off. (laughs) That's That's it. That's brilliant. Okay. That's it. But how they get to that event is what I mean by it's so much more than just one day. Right. Because people are so focused on the party. They're forgetting that the journey of planning should also be joy. And it's a self-discovery. You know, and so cherish the journey. And sometimes I just do this, you know, hashtag cherish the journey (laughs) when I'm talking to my clients, just to remind them that these are skills. These are communication skills that they'll take with them and use for their life. Mm -hmm. Cherish the journey is so helpful when you're going through the planning process, but it extends way beyond just planning your wedding and getting married. It's my everyday mantra. Now, you know, I have to admit that during COVID, it was hard to embrace that philosophy. It is hard. I can't say that I don't have days where I just don't want to get out of bed in the morning. No, we're all like that. We were talking about this the other day. Uh, Sometimes I don't know what day of the week it is. COVID has been uh, a test for us all. My first day of working for myself was 9-11. Oh, my God. Literally. Literally. Tuesday, September 11th. I left Marie Claire. My last day was Monday and I woke up on the Tuesday and um, and 9-11. Again, it was a moment of, oh my gosh, but it only served to validate my decision. Now life's too short to be doing something you don't love. Yeah. And pre-9-11 to post-9-11, 
the protocols that were put in place. That's what we were talking about that you said that I loved, that you said the, the, the definition of the new normal. Everybody uses that expression, but you, you just find, you, you put it perfectly. So for those of us who went through 9-11, we remember that pre-9-11, you didn't have to go through uh, security the same way. And post 9-11, when, when it was first happening, we're like, oh my God, this is so crazy, all these security protocols. Oh, it's so intrusive. So every time you, every time you, so intrusive. Yeah. Every time you walked into a building, you had to show your ID. I mean, it was unheard of. Yeah. And anytime you had to walk through metal detectors, you had to empty your bag or show what was in your bag, it was absolutely unheard of. And when you travel, I was going to you know, say, yeah, airports. Now yeah. is unheard of, but now, normal. It's the protocol that was put in place that 19 years later feels perfectly normal. Perfectly and so normal. my yeah. point was that with COVID, what's happening now is we'll put in place new protocols that will become new normal. And we don't even know what they're going to be yet. We don't know what they're going to be yet. Yeah. But I think everybody's keeps saying, oh, I can't wait till we get back to normal. We're not going back to normal. Mm -hmm. There is no going back. There's only going forward. Well, thank you so much, Liz. You've been amazing. Thanks, son. All right. It was a pleasure. You pleasure talking. Stay in touch. Absolutely. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, thank you so much, Leslie. And honestly, what I found most interesting about that whole thing is that you have to walk backwards coming out of the service elevator at the Metropolitan Museum of Art because you can bang into a Degas or <laughs> Monet. So, yeah, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. You can find Leslie at In Any Event New York, which is her company. And as always, you can find me at Doug Winters, Inc. to let me know what you thought of the podcast and who you'd like to see as upcoming guests. Rest in peace, Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. You'll be sorely missed. I'll see you all next time. Bye-bye.